the Pentecost story as we find it in Acts chapter 2. I'll read Acts 2 verses 1 through 21, which is not the whole Pentecost story. It's only the first bit of it. Uh, the whole chapter is 50 verses long, which I thought was a little bit too long for a Bible reading. Um, I encourage you to read the rest of it at home if you'd like. But we'll read the first 21 verses of Acts chapter 2. And I should tell you that today, Pentecost Sunday, we are starting a new sermon series. And that sermon series will start today and it won't end until Labor Day. So it's going to go all summer long and it's all going to be on the book of Acts. Why did we pick Acts for this summer? Well, we thought it was apt because in Acts, what you see the Holy Spirit, what you see God doing is kind of restarting the church. Uh, at the beginning of our chapter, at the beginning of the book, the, uh, the church is in something like quarantine. Uh, chapter one, there's 120 people. They're in an upper room. They're more or less keeping to themselves. They're a little bit afraid yet. They're uncertain what they're supposed to do. And then the Holy Spirit comes and pushes them out. And by the end of the book, they're doing things they never thought they'd be doing. They're going places they never thought to be going. And, and their life is completely changed. And so we thought that would be apt for us as we start to make that journey out of our quarantine and into the world. And as we remember what it means to be the church and what it means to engage the world and engage each other and to be filled with the Spirit of God. So let's go to Acts chapter 2. And, and before I read it, let me say I'm indebted for any, any good insights that may be in this uh, sermon. I'm indebted to Tim Keller's thinking on this. So many of, of the things that I say I've stolen from him. When the day of Pentecost came, they were together, all in one place. And suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each of one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all those who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans, Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. 
In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. So let me begin this sermon series by telling you my least favorite thing about the book of Acts. That's probably not a good way to start a sermon series, but I'm going to do it anyway. Let me tell you my least favorite thing about the book of Acts. My least favorite thing about the book of Acts is the title. I think you all know the title is not simply Acts. If you extend it out to what we conventionally call it, it's Acts of the Apostles, right? Acts of the Apostles. And that implies what we have in this book is all the things that the apostles did as they took the gospel and carried it to the ends of the earth. I think that's a misleading title. The apostles are not the main actors in the book of Acts. Who is the main actor in the book of Acts? The main actor in the book of Acts is definitely the Holy Spirit. The title of this book should be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And that's not me taking away from anything that the apostles do. The apostles do many excellent and praiseworthy things. And during this series, if we hear about them doing something excellent and praiseworthy, we will note it. But through hold this story, throughout that book, they are being carried along by the Holy Spirit. And it's unmistakable. Uh, you, I think our story is a really great example of that. Where's the power? Who's doing the moving in this story? The, the apostles did not plan Pentecost. They did not schedule the coming of the Holy Spirit. They did not have a strategic plan in which they envisioned that 50 days after Jesus' resurrection, they would schedule the coming of the Holy Spirit. That is not how this worked. They were waiting around. They didn't know what was going to happen, and the Spirit came and moved. The image that comes to my mind as I thought about this this week is a whitewater rafting. I don't know if any of you have been whitewater rafting. I've been whitewater rafting. This is like whitewater rafting, what the apostles will experience in class four and five rapids. And when, and when you go whitewater rafting, I mean, you do things, right? You put your paddle in the water and you kind of steer and you move to one side of the boat and you move to the other. But all the power and all the glory and all the wonder comes from the river. In the book of Acts, the disciples put their helmets on and all the power and all the glory and all the wonder comes from the river. So as we start this study of the Acts of the Holy Spirit, let us look at this story and see how it typifies how the Holy Spirit will work throughout this book and I think how the Holy Spirit works in our lives. Let's look at this story and I think you will see two things that the Holy Spirit does with his people and with his church. The Holy Spirit does something on the inside and on the outside. The Holy Spirit, we'll see the Holy Spirit in this story doing something on the inside and something on the outside. And let's start with the inside. 
What happened when the Holy Spirit descended on the disciples? What was the phenomenon? Well, let's read it. A sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, filled the whole house where they were sitting, and they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And here's a question. Why did God choose that manifestation of the Holy Spirit? God could have chosen to manifest the coming of the Spirit in any number of ways, any kind of signs. Why did he choose to make it look like people's heads were on fire? Right? I mean, it's strange. Why did he choose that? To answer that, we got to go back to the Old Testament. And that's true of so many of the questions of the New Testament. Go back to the Old Testament, you will understand. Fire. What does fire represent in the Old Testament? Often, fire in the Old Testament represents the presence of God. Think of the covenant God made with Abraham in, in Genesis 15, when God came and showed himself to Abraham. How did he show himself? As a torch in a smoking fire pot that moved between the pieces of the sacrifice. Remember that story? It's fire. When God showed himself to Moses, how did he manifest himself? Burning bush, right? A fire that did not consume, a lot like this fire. When God showed himself on Mount Sinai and gave the law, how did he appear on the mountaintop? This cloud of fire, this fiery cloud, this glorious cloud that was so intimidating that the people dared not approach the mountain. And then at the end of Exodus, where did that fire that led the Israelites go? Remember this? goes down and descends on the tabernacle right at the end of Exodus and goes into the Holy of Holies, right? That glorious fire cloud comes down on the tabernacle and dwells among the people. All right, for you Bible scholars, do you remember what that cloud was called? Do you remember the name of that cloud? I know some of you probably do. It was called the Shekinah. That cloud of glory, that fiery cloud was called the Shekinah glory of God. And not only was it glorious, it was a little bit dangerous, right? On the mountain, they weren't allowed to approach it or they would be struck down on Sinai. And in the Holy of Holies, right, not everyone could go into the Holy of Holies. It was only the high priest once a year. And before he did it, he had to wash himself over and over again. And he had to make sacrifices and he had to sprinkle blood everywhere because nothing unholy could possibly be in the presence of the Shekinah fire of God. Okay, on the day of the crucifixion, what happened? The curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom, and the glorious Shekinah of God leaves the temple and goes out into the world. Where does it go? On Pentecost, we find out. It comes to you. That glorious fire of God that was so majestic that the people dared not approach it on the mountain or they would be killed. That glory of God that was so majestic and so holy that only the high priest once a year could go into the holy place and see it. That glory of presence of God comes on you, lives in you. You are the temple of God. How can this be? It, because Jesus died. And he sprinkled you with blood and cleaned you so the Holy Spirit of God, the Shekinah glory, can live in you. 
If you were a Jewish person and saw that and understood the implications of that fire being on people's head, you would be blown away. It was such an utter paradigm shift. How can something so holy rest on people because of Jesus? The holy fire is in me and it's in you. We are the temple of God. And when that fire is in you, it changes everything on your insides. Now you may say, well, that sounds great. That was some really interesting biblical theology you just did, Peter, but if I'm honest, I don't feel like I'm on fire inside myself. But I see in this story, the disciples, they're clearly on fire. They're talking in tongues and they're very excited. I don't feel like them. On most days, I feel just like a normal person. And if I'm really, really honest, some days I feel pretty flat. My faith feels like a flat thing and I don't have this fire. I don't, I don't feel on fire for God. It's, what's wrong with me? Does that mean that the Shekinah, the fire's not in me? No. And this is so important for us to understand. When I did youth ministry, so many kids got tripped up on this, okay? And I know that adults get tripped on, up on it too. That does not mean that the fire is not in you. Here's what you need to understand. You are the temple of God, but your temple is under renovation, okay? Some of it has been renovated. Some of it has been clean. But there's whole wings of it that are still pretty derelict with boarded up windows. And in bits of it, there's maybe like a termite infestation. And the Holy Spirit is not just a fire, it's, it's an exterminator and it's coming in and it's renovating the derelict wing and it's, it's getting rid of the termites. It's like what uh, Reverend Bass said last week. There are two movements of repentance and renovation in the Christian life. There is the dying, this is from the catechism, right? There's the dying away of the old self and the coming to life of the new self or what he said, the mortification, the killing off of the old self, and the vivification, the coming to life of the new. There's two movements in the way that we're renovated. And this is a cycle in our lives. And the Holy Spirit is active in both movements of the cycle. So sometimes the Holy Spirit is mortifying you. It's killing you. And that doesn't feel like contentment and joy. That feels like guilt. That feels like shame sometimes. Often it feels like just a restlessness, like I am not the person I'm supposed to be. I know something's wrong. I, I've, I've, I've got it. There's something that I'm missing. Sometimes it feels like failure. An overwhelming sense and a realization that something you thought was right your whole life was fundamentally wrong. That's the Holy Spirit putting to death the old self, and it's not pleasant. Now, the Spirit's active on the other side, too, the coming to life of the new self. That's the joyful part. That's the happy part. That feels like contentment and joy. In our passage, you see the Spirit active on both parts of the cycle. So, with the disciples spilling out into the streets and speaking in tongues, that's the coming to life of the new self. That's their enthusiasm. But later in the sermon, and I didn't read this, when the sermon's done, do you remember what happens to the listeners? It says, they were cut to the heart by Peter's words. They were stabbed. Being stabbed is not a pleasant sensation. Who do you think was doing the stabbing? The Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit was bringing them to a point of guilt and repentance so that the Holy Spirit could start something new in them, in their temple. We sometimes talk as if a person filled with the Holy Spirit is only content or only joyful, like the old song, I'm in right, out right, down right, upright, something right, happy all the time. You remember that song? That's not true. That's not scriptural. That's not our experience. The Holy Spirit is much more complicated in the way that it operates in our life. So you may be on fire today. You may be flat. Or you may be restless and upset. But I proclaim to you that you are the temple of God and the fire is in you. The fire that shook the disciples is in you. The fire that was on the top of the mountain is in you. And that fire will not rest until all your fear and your doubt is gone and there is only joy. The fire is changing you inside. But the fire is not only changing you inside, it's changing you inside so that it can also change outside. And we see that in the story too. And a couple of questions to lead us into that part. Um, Pentecost, as I think many of you know, was a feast day for the Israelites, and it was one of the three pilgrimage feasts. And that means three times a year there was a feast in which all the Israelites, all the Jews from different parts of the world would come to Jerusalem, okay, pilgrimage feast. Do you think it was a coincidence that God chose a pilgrimage feast to be the day when the Holy Spirit would come? Well, the answer is, of course not. Of course he did that on purpose. Well, why do you think he chose a pilgrimage feast? Because he wanted to show that this gospel was not just something for Israel. It was for the entire world. He brought all the nations there, and the disciples didn't even understand it at this point. They didn't realize the implications of this. But this gospel that was coming was not just for them. It was for the Gentiles, too. It was for the outside world. Second question when God chose a miracle as a sign to the crowd of the Spirit's coming, he chose that miracle of everyone being able to hear the gospel in their own language. Why do you think he chose that particular miracle? And again, he could have chosen any kind of miracle. He could have done a healing, could have had Peter walk on water, could have had a voice from heaven, but he chose instead to every nation hear the gospel in their own language. Why is that? because he wanted to show that when the gospel went to those other nations, it wasn't to turn them into Jews so that they acted like Jews and looked like Jews and had the culture of Jews. It was to show that he would transform their culture and their identities to be a Christian identity. Language is the bearer of culture. The Holy Spirit would move to these countries and incarnate itself in that culture. And what that means is, African Christianity won't look like American Christianity, which won't look like Irish Christianity, which won't look like Asian Christianity. There will be this wonderful diversity of Christianities that will incarnate themselves in cultures and in languages because God is glorified when every nation, tribe, and language is filled with his Holy Spirit. By the end of this book, We'll see that happening. The Spirit just won't change the inside of people, but the whole, you know, cultures will be shaken. 
Uh, rulers will literally be brought down from their thrones. Wait till you see what happens to Herod. The way slaves understand their lives will be fundamentally changed. The way women are treated in the Roman world will be fundamentally changed. The way weak people and the downtrodden are treated will be fundamentally changed within the Christian church. The power that changes the insides of the people will go out into the world and it will change everything. Let me close with a story. George Whitfield, you know that name? Great preacher of the 18th century, one of the leading figures in what's called the Great Awakening. George Whitfield uh, preached in America. He was uh, one of the great preachers who had the Great Awakening over here, but he was British and he started in Britain and he preached there. And one of the things that got him started was, you know, he was an educated man, he was upper class, he went to Oxford, and he got up every Sunday to preach in church. And in and, and, and those days, churches were mostly empty. And he was so frustrated that there weren't more people in church. And why weren't the people in church? And so he, he did something that in his day was completely revolutionary. He decided he'd leave church and go preach on the streets. Just was not done. And he didn't just choose any street. He decided he was going to go preach to the poorest people who had the hardest time getting to church, which in those days was the miners. He lived in Bristol, England, and nearby there was a lot of coal mining towns, uh, an area called Kingswood. And so George Whitfield put on his white robe, that's what they wore, just like me, and he went down to the coal fields, and as these miners came out of the mines, he would preach to them. And these miners, who had terrible lives, their lives were nasty, brutish, and short. They were the downtrodden. They had tiny little life expectancies, less than 40 years old. So no one paid any attention to them. And they came out of the mines, and here's this Oxford-educated man in his white robe preaching the gospel of God, taking the time to come to them. And so they stop, and they listen. Their coal-dust-covered faces upturned towards this man in the white robe. And first there's 100 people there, and then there's 200 people there, and pretty soon there's thousands and people who watched early on said there was this amazing phenomenon that they saw. White lines appeared on the miners' faces. What were those white lines? What sign is this? It was the tracks of their tears cutting through the coal dust, which showed that they were being changed on the inside, cut to the heart. But it didn't just stop with the inside. Because... That was the beginning of the Great Awakening. Soon, there was preaching like this all over England, all over the United States. There was a revival. It changed all sorts of things. And one of the men who got caught up in that revival, who was changed by the movement Whitfield started, was William Wilberforce. You know that name, right? Because of the conviction that the Holy Spirit, the holy fire of God put on his heart, he became the leading force for abolition in Britain. Because of him, slavery was abolished in Britain. And because of his work and what happened in Britain, eventually slavery got abolished over here too. What happened in Britain started the movement over here. What started in the hearts of those miners changed the whole world. You are the temple of God. The Holy Spirit is in you. The Holy Spirit is out there. The Holy Spirit is going to change everything. Amen.
Lord Jesus, you know how we sometimes struggle with our hearts and feel like they're not as on fire for you as they should be and how we feel like uh, we're prone to wander. On this Pentecost Sunday, we open wide the doors of our hearts again and we pray that you, Holy Spirit, would fill it. Send your Shekinah fire. Burn away what is not of you and install in us a joyful, hopeful, determined, persevering will to do your things in this world. Thank you for making us your children, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.